0: Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Marina Rusto to talk about her book, The Lost Archive, Traces of a Caliphate in a Cairo Synagogue, and about the Cairo Geniza and why it matters. Marina Rusto is the Kidori A. Zilka Professor of Jewish Civilization in the Near East, and Professor of Near Eastern Studies and History at Princeton University, where she also runs the Princeton Geniza Lab. The Lost Archive is only her most recent book on the Cairo Geniza, and I'm so excited that she's able to join us to talk about it. Listen in for an expansive conversation about how we can consider the Geniza in new ways What it tells us about the Fatimid state in the 10th to 12th centuries and the broader Middle East, and how this teaches us about how documents and records function in social as well as historical terms. The Cairo Geniza is a repository of such immense historical value that sometimes it's easy to just assume the ways that it's important. And I'm so excited to really dig in deep with Marina on these important issues and think through all the different ways in which the Geniza is an important historical record, an important social phenomenon, and an important lens through which we can understand medieval Jewish history, as well as the broader context in which Jews as well as their neighbors lived. Thanks for listening in. Hi, Marina. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi. Good to be here.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. I really had such a blast reading your book, and it's wonderful to be able to talk about it and to think about the Geniza really broadly. I want to think about uh, your starting point from the book. The book is called The Lost Archive. And it's interesting that you're calling the Cairo Geniza an archive, in part because we have this uh, great 20th century Geniza scholar, Shlomo Dov Goitain, who talked about the Geniza in very different terms. In the introduction to his uh, book, The Mediterranean Society, he specifically calls the Geniza a kind of an anti-archive. I was wondering if you can talk a bit about the way in which you see the Geniza as a kind of a lost archive and what this means to you when we think about the way that we approach the Geniza and the kinds of questions that we can ask about it and what we can learn from it.
1: So I called the book The Lost Archive, but actually the claim that I'm making isn't that the Guineas itself is an archive, but rather that it contains traces of other archives. Goitain was right that the Geniza is not an archive because an archive is arranged and maintained for the purposes, not just of storage, but also of retrieval. So things have to be indexed, they have to be organized, they have to be ordered, and they have to be pruned. For all those reasons, archives are a kind of different animal. Whereas the Geniza, people were just throwing stuff in haphazardly with absolutely no expectation that things would be accessible again. In that sense, it was an anti archive. But Goitain says the Geniza is an anti archive because it was basically a trash heap, what we would call a recycling bin or something like that. But the Geniza is one place where we can find um, evidence to reconstruct the archiving practices of a state that didn't itself preserve an archive, the Fatima Caliphate. So in other words, like it'd be so great if we could just like walk into a building and I don't know, Cairo, for instance, and, you know, see the whole archive of the Fatima Caliphate laid out there. Like first you have the fiscal documents and then you have the administrative documents and they're arranged according to date and place. This is how, you know, we kind of expect to work. What you have in the Geniza is a bunch of documents that may once have been in the Fatimid archives, but eventually were dumped and pruned from them. Because if things are are preserved for the purposes of retrieval, then some things eventually have to be pruned. Otherwise, you just end up with an infinite archive, you know, in a kind of Borghesean way. And the other thing that you find in the Geniza is documents that were never intended for the archive. When you work those two types of state document against each other, you can kind of triangulate what the lost Fatima archive looked like. So that's the lost archive that I'm, that I'm referring to in the title.
0: Yeah. It's this question of how we reconstruct the past in the absence of sources or in the absence of an official repository. Um, An official repository is both really good because it means that you have a lot of material that you can work with, but an official repository also means that there may be things that don't make it in there on purpose or they get removed on purpose. Um, And so I think that part of what you're doing here is using the Geniza as a way to think through how we can approach history in really different ways.
1: That's right. This is kind of in keeping with the move that some people in my field, medieval, Middle East history have moved towards in the last decade, which is from static archives to archiving practices, the study of archiving practices. And I think there's a much, much broader movement towards this, which is like you have the history of the book on the one hand, the history of archives on the other, which you know well, that's your field. That when you have a sense of how texts were produced and why they were produced in the material forms in which they were produced and then how they survived, again, physically, how did they survive? You can actually use them as historical source material in a much more responsible way. So I think part of what historians had come to do over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries is in a sense to get kind of lazy which is to say that we reified archives as a kind of ready-made repository of historical source material as opposed to understanding that the archive is an accumulation of different processes obviously not all historians did this but you know i think my expectation was very much like you know i would love to be able to walk into a building and start and looking through files and then thinking retroactively about, okay, what's here, what isn't here. Whereas going from the other end, which is, you know, taking all the discarded material and trying to figure out what an archive would have looked like had it survived, is a different story. Or to put this in a different way, there's the archive as it was kept in the period in question. And there, the curatorial conventions and standards and assumptions and criteria are interesting to think about and also often quite transparent. And then there's the archive as it's kind of evolved over the centuries. Let's say like I'm an 11th, 12th century historian. So as it evolved in the in the 800 subsequent years, I mean, if you think about, about Italy, right, this is a place that has some of the oldest continuously operating libraries um, that we know of. But of course, the the archival material that they have in these libraries has been organized and reorganized, you know, dozens of times since the fourth century or or whatever, and that means that we have to start asking different questions about the afterlives of archives from how the archives were actually produced and arranged in the time period that we're studying.
0: You've talked about the ways in which we can try to understand whether or not the Geniza is an archive, or ways in which archives have made their way into the Geniza and this. Again, it's a really fascinating intellectual question, and it's one that I've thought about for a long time. What counts as an archive? Uh, What does it mean for something to count um, as an archive? But when we move past that definitional issue, what's the significance of this approach to thinking about the Geniza and to looking at it from this point of view?
1: So just on the most basic level, when Goitain was writing, it was not widely understood that there were any documents at all from the medieval Middle East. So there's a very basic so what question, which is, we have information about a society about which we knew only what the elites were writing. And that gave us a really skewed view. I mean, you still see it actually in medieval Middle East historiography, that there's still more of an emphasis on political history than there should be, because, you know, the chroniclers were recording the kinds of events that would have made front page news in our day. And if you actually want to know how the other 99% of the population lived, you need a different kind of source material. More than that, the fact that we have such rich and detailed information and we have trade letters, we have marriage contracts, we have letters from wives who are, you know, angry with their husbands for going away from Cairo for two years to trade in the India trade. So, you know, like you're over there in India and I'm here, like trying to raise the children and like, what's your problem? And if you don't come back, I'm going to leave you, you know, whatever. Not that women have that option, but you get the idea. It's not just that we're able to get a more variegated picture of Egypt or more broadly of, you know, the Islamic Middle East. It's also that this is a really well-documented pre-modern society. Pre-industrial societies of the complex type, so sedentary, agrarian, you know, with states ruling over them have certain commonalities. And when you understand one, you actually have a much better standpoint for understanding the others. So here there's a fantastic book by Patricia Crona, who was a a very, very brilliant historian of the medieval Middle East, but she wrote a kind of general book called Pre-Industrial Societies, where, you know, she went and like inhaled an enormous amount of both sociological and historical literature and figured out that until early modern Europe, the vast majority of sedentary agrarian societies in the world actually shared certain things in common. And it was only Europe that eventually diverged from the pattern. And the reason that Europe diverged from the pattern was that it was actually a very unsuccessful pre-industrial society. So industrialization was, you know, the culmination of a process of Europe essentially trying to handle the fact that it actually wasn't as technologically advanced as the Islamic world or China. So, if you want to understand something broadly about global history and global history before colonialism, then the Guinness is an amazing lens onto that. Then there are a lot of other questions. One of them is what role do documents play in pre industrial societies? What role can documents play? I mean, I didn't deal with all documents in the Lost Archive, I just dealt with documents that touched on state administration you like I just said a few minutes ago that um, political history is still too dominant in my field. So why am I writing about a state? So states also have social histories, which is to say, like I'm not writing about the caliph and the vizier and the poets who entertain them at the court, but rather I'm trying to understand how the greatest repository of money and power and human capacity, right? Like logistical capacity that these societies had, which were the state organized time and space? You know, how did it rule? Basically, how did it manage to maintain power, accumulate power, extract resources? All of these are basic questions without which you can't actually understand any society. It took me a long time to realize that because as a Jewish historian, I was trained to either ignore the state or to look at the state in a kind of transactional way, which is like, what's the relationship between Jews and the state? And actually the whole way that the Lost Archive came about is I had intended to write a book about Jews in the state. Um, the Fatimid and Ayyubid states in particular. And I quickly realized that I wasn't going to be able to do that well or at the level of detail that I wanted until I understood more about the state. And then this became a kind of 10-year project to try to understand the Fatimid state. But organizing time and space, so on the one hand, dynasties want to persevere for you know more than two, three generations, right? This is like this famous thing in Ibn Khaldun, where he's like, you know, three generations max, unless they really get their act together. And the only way you can do that is by writing stuff down. And then organizing space, if you actually find evidence of how the Fatimid Archive was organized, both from secondhand descriptions and from the surviving documentation, you realize that the archive mirrored the territory, right? So things were archived by region. You needed to know how to manage what was on the ground. So, you know, documentary record can be a mirror, not always a direct mirror, um, but a complex mirror of the society.
0: I mean, I think that one of the things that comes out of this is just the really fascinating way in which you are finding state documents, as it were, in this repository that has traditionally been a fount of social history in particular. Perhaps one way to get into this is to think about what does it mean for the Cairo which is really the storeroom of the synagogue, to serve as our window into the Fatimid world, the Fatimid state, in the sense that, what does this say about the broader world in which Cairo Jews were living, that this is where we find such a rich collection of documents as opposed to, as you said, like a single building where you could walk in?
1: So one answer that I'm not going to give is, you know, I think this would have been the assumption of anybody just looking at this material for the first time, is is you look at this big, Pile of discarded paper, among which you find all these state documents. And you think to yourself, "Well, what government, like you know, discards its precious and confidential documents?" And doesn't that suggest a kind of lack of respect for the written word? And then you know you can kind of link that in your mind. This is again like this is the assumption you link that in your mind to the fact that the status of written documents and written records in general in Islamic law and learning is questioned. So if you are going to a Qadi court in the Middle Ages, and you want a record of a transaction, you're not going to get a document by virtue of which the transaction has occurred. It's not a dispositive document as a technical term, but rather you're going to get a record of a testimony to the effect that this transaction has already occurred. In other words, documents are not sufficient to make evidentiary claims. There also have to be human witnesses. And then you connect that up with the fact that the transmission of learning, the transmission of books in the medieval Islamic world was oral, meaning to say that if you had copied a book from another book, this was considered to be of lesser authenticity than if you had heard the very same book recited by either its author or somebody who had received the book from its author or from somebody who had received from somebody who, you get the point. There had to be an authorized transmission, an authorized chain of transmitters. And this goes beyond hadith, right? Everybody knows like hadith is like so-and-so said to so-and-so said to so-and-so. This is like books in general. So we look at that from you know a a kind of modern Western academic point of view, where we like to look at evidence completely separated and decontextualized from all of the kind of human influences over it. We just want to take the evidence itself. I'm just gonna look at the argument. I'm not gonna look at who made this argument, right? That's kind of our approach. So You know, if you want to understand what a text said, look at the text. That's not how it worked in the medieval Islamic world. A colleague of mine in Belgium, Frédéric Baudin, has done an enormous amount of work on a 15th century historian from Cairo called al-Makrizi. So al-Makrizi, super fun to read. He was a student of Ibn Khaldun, which makes him, by our modern standards, very readable and like fun historian to read, not just like a chronicler who's like, and then this happened, and this happened. He actually takes problems and tries to, to solve them. And El-Makrisi spent his entire life in Cairo, and one of the books he wrote was a history of Cairo through its ruins, and in particular Fatimid Cairo. And at one point, he's talking about the pyramids, okay? So, like, if you live in Cairo, you can see the pyramids from where you are. They're accessible. Like, everybody knew that they were there. But el Makrizi, instead of actually going to the pyramids and looking at the evidence for himself, he doesn't trust that. He doesn't trust his own direct experience of the evidence, what he does is he talks about the pyramids based on stuff that he read in other books about the pyramids. The exact opposite of what, you know, you and I were taught to do in graduate school, which is like always go directly to the source. So there's a kind of social context of learning where um, it's not just a question of like authorizing learning and you have the gatekeepers and you can't learn unless you have access to the gatekeepers. It's rather the idea that information is socially mediated. And that's actually a very sophisticated point of view. On the one side, you have this kind of like bias towards oral transmission. For the historians of the 20th century who were looking at the Islamic world and not seeing any documents, they said, well, okay, this makes perfect sense because this was an oral society. But no, it turns out it's much more complicated than that, that in fact, you know, hundreds of thousands of documents have survived. But where and how? One of the things that I discovered in the course of writing this book is that the Geniza is not exceptional. The way Geniza historians usually like tell the story is that the reason that Cairo Geniza survived is that there's a taboo in Judaism against destroying any written representation of God's name. So if you have God's name in Hebrew script, you can't deliberately destroy it. You have to let it decay by itself. So put it into a kind of dignified limbo. So maybe this is true. And maybe this is even true on the books. That's not even so clear. Certainly today it is, but was it in the 11th century? Not so clear. But if you went and did ethnographic field research in 11th or 12th century, Fustat, and walked around and like interviewed every Jew you could find and said, why do you put things into the Geniza? You'd probably get dozens of different answers. You know, as many answers as there are Jews, as the old joke goes. So that's the first thing is that we can't assume that the Geniza was there because of piety. Then it turns out that there were other quote-unquote Genizot that had nothing to do with Jews. So in Damascus, in the Umayyad Mosque, there is a structure in the middle of the courtyard that preserved about 200,000, both documents and manuscripts, from almost the same period as the Geniza, more or less, a bit later, in various states of decay. There were books on shelves that were decaying, and then there were documents all over the floor that people had just kind of discarded there. Clearly a kind of Geniza-like structure. There are other examples from the Islamic world, but you can even go beyond the Islamic world to the Silk Roads. There are repositories, um, both archaeological and otherwise, of archives, sub-archives, and discarded manuscripts and documents all over the Silk Road that happen to have survived because of the climatic conditions. The most famous of these is at Dunhuang on the uh, basically eastern terminus of the Silk Roads, where... About sixty thousand manuscripts were sealed in behind a wall, right? In exactly the same way you had the Guineas behind a wall of the Ben Ezra Synagogue in Cairo. Not sealed, there was an opening where people were depositing things, but it's it's the same idea. So what I ended up having to conclude is that pre-modern cultures in which everything is handmade, right? This is a world of the handmade. Simply didn't throw anything away. It wasn't like you know they had like a sanitation system with you know garbage that got taken out you used all parts of the animal when the animal could no longer be used you did something else with it so you know paper itself is recycled cloth so recycled textiles recycled clothing and people would take paper and write on every corner of it and reuse it and once they couldn't do that anymore there was no way to simply get rid of it right so what you did was you put it into this kind of limbo was it sacred I mean, you can argue about that. Maybe it was sacred in a certain very loose sense of the term, but I don't think it was piety that was the reason people did this. So bottom line, yes, it's true that you have documents that have survived in this very disorganized way, but we shouldn't imagine that that necessarily entails a lack of reverence for the written word. Actually, in some sense, it entails a greater reverence for the written word.
0: There's so much to think about here. Um, I just want to make one brief comment. As you were talking about the reality that in the pre-industrial world people just didn't throw things away, it reminds me of, in some ways, it's actually the inverse, but it's a similar kind of question. Um, I'm thinking about Daniel Smale's article, his work on hoarding, right, which is again the opposite. We're talking about people holding on to things far beyond what we would, you know, expect or even, in some cases, may think is healthy. But his argument is that it's the growth of industrialization that leads people to accumulate more and more and more things. Um, And it's also the way in which the availability of, you know, cheap manufactured goods and so on leads us to throw things away. You know, and I think that part of what you're saying here, which is really interesting, is that the way that people interacted with the world around them was just so incredibly different. So people just didn't throw things away. They found ways to reuse and recycle. Yeah,
1: I couldn't put this in the book because ultimately I couldn't find the source. So if there's you know any listener who who knows what I'm about to say, like please email me. Which is I I read a personal essay in about 2006 2007 by a writer who at the time was teaching at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and he'd grown up in a in a small town in Lebanon in the mountains. And the personal essay was the year garbage came to my village in Lebanon, and he doesn't mean you know the year that my Village in Lebanon, like, had a big sanitation problem of the kind that, you know, you read about sometimes in the, in the newspapers for, like, Lebanon or Naples or whatever. But rather, he said, the concept of garbage did not exist in my village until one fine day in the 1960s when plastic bags arrived. And as soon as you have plastic bags, like, all of a sudden people can throw things away, which they'd never done before. There was always some other use for an
0: object. Right. I mean, could you imagine people, like, Marie condoing things? Eight hundred years ago, right. you know, we could go deeper on that, but I think there's just so much to talk about. I mean, one thing that that I want to bring us back to was your your thinking about the state. You know, something that you mentioned a few minutes ago was that you were interested in writing a history of the state, and I think that one of the interesting things about looking at the Geniza as, like you called it, a lost archive, um, is that it helps us to think about the Fatimids as a state, and I think that this is important in a couple ways, you know, because you are able to emphasize and focus on bureaucracy. And one of the points that you make in the book is that you suggest that there's a tendency to see the Islamic Middle East prior to the rise of the Ottomans as kind of a non-bureaucratic world. You you have the bureaucracy and so on as kind of this Ottoman innovation, but that you are kind of really proving here through the existence of these documents in the Cairo Geniza that the Fatimids had like a Max Weber style bureaucracy. Uh, which people tend to associate with modernity you know in terms of how we understand modernization and so what's the importance there of looking at the geniza in this way and therefore being able to reconceptualize the islamic middle east in really broad terms
1: one of the the things that got me thinking about what's a state and how do we conceive of states and how do we define states and where are we allowed to use the term is i can't tell you how many times people have asked me you know, editors, people who were listening to lectures of mine, generally people who, who were rooted in the modern world, either because they were living in the modern world or because they were modern historians, who said to me, but can you really talk about a state in this period? The question kind of took me by surprise because I had no problem thinking about pre-modern states. So I said to myself, okay, well, what are the, what are the assumptions behind the set of questions that people are asking? So first of all, I think people hear the word state and they think nation-state. So clearly, that's not what we're dealing with here. That is very much a modern invention. You know you can get this from Max Weber, Economy and Society, or you can just get it from kind of like you know general osmosis. So Weber famously said that states are attempts to obtain and sustain a monopoly on the legitimate forms of violence. So for Weber, it's all about law enforcement and coercion and the threat of coercion. But actually, if you go to that passage, in Economy and Society, or several passages, he said much more than that, too. And that's where his work on bureaucracy um, was also coming from. So, for Weber, bureaucracy was a product of early modern Europe and part of a process that he calls rationalization. And rationalization is many things for Weber, but one of the things that it is is, you know, let's say I'm a bureaucrat and I'm in a particular government office and I like drop dead and somebody comes and replaces me, the procedures are going to remain exactly the same. Right. That there's predictability that that law and process and administration does not inhere in the individual, but rather there's a set of protocols uh, that go beyond the individual. And that leads to continuity, right? Continuity, consistency and predictability. And what I was seeing in the documents that I was looking at was exactly that was procedures, predictability and continuity. You know, one of the examples that I give is tax receipts and every single tax receipt is structured the exact same way. You don't even have to be able to decipher it to know what it is just by looking at it because bureaucrat A writes in the same corner every single time, bureaucrat B always writes below him, that kind of thing. And so I thought, okay, well, what does that mean that we have this kind of of predictability? Well, first of all, it means that law and administration do not adhere necessarily in the arbitrary whims of the individual. So the whole last chapter of the Lost Archive is about oriental despotism, which is this idea more or less explicitly stated in lots of depictions of the Middle East since Aristotle, that the Middle East is run in this kind of arbitrary manner, you know, whether you call it the patrimonial state, there are other names for it. Predictability is important because predictability implies the possibility of power from below. In other words, if you're living in a society in which rulers can do whatever the heck they want, and there are absolutely no constraints on their action, you as a subject of these rulers are not going to be able to do very much, right? Because you're never going to know what your options are. Whereas if you live in a society of predictable procedures, you know what your options are, right? Like there's a lot of literature now in forum shopping, which is the idea, like if you have, you know, three different types of courts of law that you can go to. So in the case of Jews in medieval Egypt, you could go to a rabbinical court, you could go to a Qadi court or you could go to a sovereign tribunal, a state tribunal. And believe me, people knew exactly which one they wanted to go to for which kind of transaction. I had co-taught a seminar with Eve Krakowski at Princeton, and we had these two students who went through like sheaves and sheaves of court documents, both from rabbinical courts and from college courts, and discovered that if people were writing a contract for a debt and the debt was less than five dinars, which is like maybe like a month or two of salary, they could go to rabbinical court, but if it was more than five DNRs, they would always go to a Qadi court because they needed serious enforcement, that kind of thing. You can make those choices because you know what the system is and you know how it behaves. Didn't matter who you were, the procedures were the same. The implications of that kind of predictability and consistency are both the possibility of, you know, you're not, you're not living in these societies where people are just like oppressed all day long, but also consistency across dynasties, which I to me was the most fascinating thing. If you think about the fact that in the first century of Islamic rule in Egypt, so the Muslims conquered Egypt in 640, and you take the papyri that have been found between 640 and 740 from the upper echelons of the state, like tax demands, for example, they're bilingual. They're written in Greek and Arabic. Why are they written in Greek and Arabic? Not because the population spoke Greek, because Greek was actually an administrative language. Um, The population was speaking, you know, some dialect of Egyptian, right? What we would call Coptic now. But the bilingual documents was because the people manning the bureaucracies in the first century of Islam were the same people who had manned the bureaucracies under Roman rule. Because if you're a ruler and you're conquering a society, the last thing you're going to do is dismantle the tax administration. Because if you dismantle the tax administration and all that local knowledge that goes along with it, how do you actually manage to extract resources from the populace? You're going to be in big trouble. So the fact that rulers... You know, we think that they hold the power, but they come in and they there are constraints on their behavior too. They have to come in and they have to rely on the lower echelons of bureaucracy, on the faceless bureaucrats who historians tend not to write a lot of histories about, although now, you know, that's changing. That suggests that power is much, much more complicated. It's not just that the rulers can do whatever they want, their constraints on their behavior as well.
0: We started off by thinking about this question of is the Geniza an archive? And here you're talking about this question of whether or not the Fatimid caliphate was a state. And I think that when we ask this question, like, so what, you know, why does this definitional issue matter? And why is it so significant? These are also loaded questions because they are weighed down by this tremendous baggage of modernization theory in particular. You know, we mentioned Max Weber, essentially this question of, does the Geniza count as an archive? Right or you you call it a lost archive? Can we talk about a state in the 11th century Egypt or anything like that? These are questions that are imbued with assumptions that these are all features of modernity. One of the important things to keep in mind here is a series of orientalist assumptions about the Middle East that that you are breaking down by using these terms, using these frameworks to think about a time and a place that a lot of people assume. Didn't have these kinds of features.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, in a way, what you just said hits on my whole, sorry about the word, my whole crusade (laughs) as a historian, which is there are a lot of assumptions that people make about like, what are the differences between pre-modernity, modernity? What are the differences between Europe and the Middle East? And often they're very misleading. So of course there are differences. There are differences between every kind of society, but they're not always the differences that we would go for. Weber had this notion of Qadi justice. And, you know, the thing that's really like charming and wonderful about Weber is that he'll take a word from one context and apply it broadly to lots of other contexts. So, so Qadi justice was a concept that he developed in order to indicate the notion that justice is was meted out in the Islamic world in arbitrary ways. Number one, as though that kind of arbitrariness doesn't exist in other societies, which is, you know, preposterous. But to Weber's great credit. When he described Qadi justice, he wasn't saying this is a feature solely of Islamic societies. It's just that he was using Islamic law as the kind of poster child for this arbitrariness of law that he wanted to depict. So, actually, the, the first example that he gives when he introduces the term is Sancho Panza in Don Quixote, you know, like kind of pretending to mete out justice. So, that's misleading in the sense that there's a whole school of thinking, really, for the last 25 years. That comes very much from modernization theory in the Middle East, which says that actually it's Islam and Islamic law that kind of held back the development of these societies, whether it be because of the prohibition on interest. So this is like, you know, a problem in terms of development and finance or because of the constraints of Islamic law. I mean, there are all kinds of the argument has been made for many different different sides, legal, uh, economic, governmental. If you look at the medieval Islamic world from the point of view where I sit looking through the documents and understanding that there was a bureaucracy and that both legal and governmental processes were consistent and predictable and not arbitrary, it begins to look much more like what historians have argued about Europe, right? Which is that there's a kind of inexorable um, push from an increasingly documented society in the Middle Ages to, you know, the glorious efflorescence of um, bureaucracy and ultimately like modernity. You can make tendentious arguments any way you want to, but that doesn't actually help you understand what's going on in society itself.
0: I was really struck by your discussion a little bit earlier about the tax documents, right? And this is a really rich description of thinking about, well, what are these documents actually that are sitting there in the Geniza? And so maybe do you want to take a moment to talk about the kinds of documents, the kinds of sources that we find in this uh, lost archive, to use your term? Uh, I know that you focus particularly on decrees in the book, but maybe you want to explain a bit more about what it is that we find in the Cairo Geniza that makes it such a rich archive of the Fatimid dynasty.
1: I think it's important to understand that, you know, I worked on a tiny, tiny percentage of what's in the Geniza. So the grand total of what's in the Geniza now, um, people are giving the estimate of about 400,000 pages or fragments of pages. Of that, the vast majority is literary. Um, texts written for posterity, texts written in long form, so not just poetry and belles lettres, but also scientific works, medical works, chronicles, philosophy, and all of rabbinic literature. Right, so all of this is considered to be to be literary texts. The other ten percent, so roughly forty thousand, are documents. Of the documents, the vast majority is in Hebrew script in lots of different languages. So documents can be written in Judeo-Arabic, which is Arabic and Hebrew characters, can be written in some combination of Hebrew, Aramaic and Judeo-Arabic, which is often the case for legal documents. Letters are mostly in Judeo-Arabic, but sometimes people want to sound fancy and highfalutin and they'll write in Hebrew. Aramaic by now was really just a kind of technical language of, of Jewish law and rabbinic literature. This is the case you know, after the 10th century. And then in the later period, okay, so chronology, this is crucial. The vast majority of what we know from the Geniza now dates to um, the period between about 950 and 1250, when the particular neighborhood in Fustat, where the Ben Ezra Synagogue is, was the main locus of the Jewish community of medieval Fustat Cairo. And then gradually, as the whole population moved northwards away from Fustat, you get fewer and fewer deposits in the Geniza until the late 15th century, at which point Exiles from Iberia after the Spanish expulsions moved to Egypt in droves, and now suddenly in the 16th century, you have lots of Ladino documents, which is you know incredibly cool. Eventually, you get Ottoman Turkish. I mean, there's you know all kinds of languages. Even the earliest known Yiddish fragment, which is from the 13th century, was found in the Guineas, and not in Europe. So that's the kind of bigger picture. The Arabic script texts in the Geniza is like a whole separate question that you know nobody's really gone to the bottom of this. Jeffrey Kahn in Cambridge, who's one of the great pioneers um, in the Arabic script Geniza, estimated in an early article from the 1980s that um, about 5% of the Geniza was an Arabic script. And, you know, maybe it's more, maybe it's less, but even if you just take 5% as a kind of rough and ready figure, that's 20,000 documents right there. So of that theoretical twenty thousand. I was only looking at the documents that had been produced by the state or by state officials. Lower officials, higher officials, doesn't matter, but like something in connection with the state. Why were they in the Geniza? I mean, you know, I can tell you in 634 pages or less, but just the long and short of it is um, they got discarded and recycled. I got into this racket because the most, I would say, charismatic kind of Arabic script, state-related document having these are petitions. And petitions are wonderful because petitions are like, you know, they're they're mini stories. Often they're people who are desperate, or at least the petition scribe is framing their story in a very dramatic way. You know, I'm on the brink of starvation. My wife and children are, you know, naked, starving, and unprotected. I mean, there's all kinds of rhetoric that gets used to kind of you know heighten the urgency of the petitions. But in fact, they're fascinating. If you can kind of say, okay, the degree of desperation we will never really be able to determine. But even without that kind of desperateness and drama, they're normal, ordinary people who are asking the state to do things for them on a very personal basis, kind of as an exception, like because you, the ruler, are so generous, because we would never allow this kind of injustice, you know, to exist in your glorious uh, reign, I am asking you to do this, right? Of those petitions, many are complaints about the misdeeds of mid-level bureaucrats, like the local governor stole 70 bags of grain that I was trying to transport from one place to another. Can you please get them back for me? Basically going above the heads of local officials to seek justice. The Lost Archive is an introduction to the book about petitions that I ended up hiving off from the Lost Archive and is going to, you know, inshallah, be a separate book of its own. That's what I'm trying to write right now. And the reason that I felt like I had to just take another step back and say, okay, let me introduce the petitions in a broader way is, is that the petitions had been for a long time understood to be the only kind of Fatimid state document that we had. What I came to realize in digging through the Arabic script texts of the Geniza is that actually there are many different genres of state document that got preserved in the Geniza. So there are decrees of many types. There are decrees that were given to petitioners, which is, you know, people knew that some decrees had survived that had been given to petitioners. But then there were also decrees that had nothing to do with petitions, decrees that the central government in Cairo sent out to local officials in the territory, Um, decrees that got sent out for public announcement and recitation. There were reports that government officials wrote um, to their superiors or to their equals elsewhere in the territory. There were fiscal documents of all kinds. The fiscal documents are fascinating because we don't really understand them yet. I mean, I talked about these tax receipts. I have a PhD student, Lorenzo Bondioli, who just finished in, in November and he wrote his dissertation on, on taxation under the Fatimids. And, you know, we read every week, we read these, these tax documents together and it's not even clear whether all of them are tax documents now. They have something to do with land tenure and with extraction of resources, but who's extracting what from whom, it's not always so clear. There are fiscal accounts where you can see the government spending like piles and piles of gold on what we don't know, because we haven't read through all of these. They're really hard to read. They're written in a kind of fiscal shorthand that nobody has 100% deciphered yet. But we can generally determine the amounts of money that are on these accounts. And they're like, you know, 200,000 dinars, which is like, you know, it's like today's equivalent of, I don't know, maybe like, you know, $20 billion or something like that. So there's quite a bit, to be learned from these, I think what I did was to try to establish a kind of rough and ready typological scheme and a sketch of the whole system as it was turning out these documents and, you know, archiving them or discarding them or, or both in turn, um, so that others can then come along and really deepen the work that I've done. So like now people know that the stuff is there and I hope that others will, will come along and, uh, and make even more sense of them.
0: You obviously talked about a lot of different genres of documents, and the decrees that you're focusing on here are obviously a subset of a subset of a subset, you know, really a very small portion of the Cairo and to some extent, that's to be expected. No one's going to study the entire Geniza. That's like saying you're going to walk into YIVO and study every single document there. You know, everybody picks out their particular collection, their particular issues that they're focusing on. But part of what I'm interested in thinking about here is about how... Looking at this particular subset or collection of documents, what is it that it allows you to do specifically? Uh, and here I'm thinking about the ways in which how different generations of Kinesi scholars uh, have tended to emphasize different kinds of texts and fragments, whether we're talking about, I don't know, like the focus on uh, literary fragments and pseudopigraphal uh, and apocryphal fragments, when we're looking at the you know 1890s and 1900s. Goitain, you know, as you mentioned before, had this notion of the documentary Geniza, which is really the foundation for his work on the Mediterranean society. The folks in Cambridge love to show off their you know, Maimonides autographs, right? Uh, you know, When you go there and see what they've got, there are contracts, there are so many things that are in the Geniza. So each of these different genres, each of these classes of documents tell us something different. How is it that the decree is help to illuminate the world of the past in ways which are similar or different to a lot of the other things that are in the Geniza?
1: People who initially started to mine the Geniza for its manuscripts were primarily interested in finding evidence of the evolution of the biblical text. This is in keeping with a lot of the research that was happening and a lot of the digging that was happening in Egypt in the late 19th century. Right, The question was, can we find you know, palimpsests that give us an even earlier Greek texts of the New Testament, or can we find texts of the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew that don't agree with the received text that we have today? And in fact, there are, there are plenty of those. Gradually it became apparent that there was a lot more going on in the Geniza. And one of the best things to read on this is Sacred Trash by Adina Hoffman and, and Peter Cole, because the theme of the book is really that you can look at the same document and see completely different things depending on what you're interested in. So one of the examples that they use is a text of, of Origins Hexapla, a six-fold biblical text in columns, like a kind of synoptic Bible in Greek, or in one case in Hebrew in Greek characters. And most of Origins Hexapla had been lost. And so when sheets of Origins Hexapla started to emerge from the Geniza, people got really excited. The problem with these pages of the hexapla is that they were palimpsests. So the hexapla was the undertext that had been um, washed off and erased. And you could just barely see the traces of letters um, that had, you know, where the ink had kind of stained the parchment. And above this text, what people call the upper text written, you know, after the parchment had been washed in a very dark black, highly legible ink were pew liturgical poems of Yanai. So each of these texts is really important. The biblical text is important because everybody knows about origin. People are super interested in early Christianity. People want to understand, you know, the evolution of the biblical text. So origin, great, yay, we found origin. And it wasn't until 50 years later that people really bothered to understand what the upper text was. And it turns out that Yanai was a Paitan, a liturgical poet from whom we had precisely one poem until the discovery of the Gnezea. And now we have 400 Similarly, with the decrees, you know, to me, this was like such a fascinating kind of, you know, sacred trash uh, story because there were these gigantic lines of calligraphic Arabic with no pointing and often the scribe had not lifted the pen at all. And yet it was clear that they weren't sloppy. They were written very neatly. They were just written in a very stylized and difficult to read way. And so you'd have this like, you know, bifolio in which all the text was in Hebrew, but there was one giant line of Arabic going across the page that you couldn't read, right? So people had ignored it. If you go into the catalog of the Bodley and Geniza collection, which was published in 1906 and which is really excellent and really detailed, and especially on the documents, it's just like there's such good granular information, which is saying a lot for a manuscript catalog. But nearly every time there was one of these Fatimid state documents, it's cataloged as, and I quote, scribbling. Right. That was the assumption is that this page was discarded because it wasn't important. And that's why it got reused for for this Hebrew script stuff. And, you know, it took me a while as well to understand what I was looking at, which is fragments of fancy Fatimid decrees that had once been huge and were now, you know, in, in fragments and recycled for for other texts. So I published a little like notice in the newsletter of the Cambridge University Geniza Research Unit in which I, you know, talked about these decree fragments. And I got an email from Shama Friedman, who's emeritus of Bar-Ilan, one of the great Talmudists of our generation, saying, oh, now I understand why it is that a bifolio from the Babylonian Talmud that I published in 1986 has a giant, has some giant lines of Arabic across it. And I thought to myself, my God, how many more of these are there? With those little kind of microcosms, like, let's just take this bifolio of the Babylonian Talmud with like, you know, three, four gigantic lines of Arabic across it demonstrated to me is that it wasn't just the information contained in the words that I needed to be looking at. So the words give you one thing, it's a decree, it's a decree about, you know, I can't remember what in this case, let's say like, you know, the dredging of a canal, some kind of like maintenance of infrastructure. Often it's about these very kind of, you know, like brick and mortar logistical problems that the state had to manage. But there's more than that going on than a page because you have to ask yourself, well, first of all, why do we only have a fragment of this decree? Second of all, how did this decree go from the Chancery to the Jewish scribe who reused it as scrap paper for writing down his like you know personal copy of a passage from Bavamitzi and the Babylonian Talmud? And there, there's a whole set of steps to be reconstructed that give us a kind of microcosm of the society. So in this case, the decree gets written up in the chancery, gets sent to a local official. The local official is under no obligation to archive it. It's actually the central chancery in Cairo that's archiving it. So the local official discards it. What happens after he discards it? Well, we have some evidence that there was a used paper market. So let's say this Jewish scribe who wants to write a personal copy of a section from Tractate Bava amitzi of the Babylonian Talmud um, goes to the used paper seller and, and buys a scrap of a decree. Well, it turns out it wasn't just Jews who were doing this. There is evidence from, from other repositories that this was actually a common practice, again, not just in the Islamic world, but even elsewhere. A colleague of mine who works in Paris, Naim Tichem, uh, discovered in Vienna a fragment of a Fatima decree with um, a Greek text written on the back, a Christian um, religious text. The author was ninth century, but the copy is from the 11th century. If you go to the Archivio di Stato in Genova, in Italy, um, you find this amazing notebook of a notary named Giovanni from the 12th century, who his notebook is just like, you know, normal like pamphlet. It's kind of his, his uh, account book or whatever. He's writing copies of the documents that he's, that he's writing for other people. But a couple of the pages of his notebook are constructed from reused Fatima decrees. Where did he get them from? How did he get them? Hard to say. One of them is bilingual Arabic and Latin. So it seems to have been some kind of treaty between perhaps even Genova or perhaps one of the other Italian republics and the the Fatimid state sometime before the 1120s. But looking beyond the Islamic world. okay, so now we have people recycling Fatimid decrees for texts in Hebrew script, in Greek script and in Latin script. We also have examples of people recycling Fatima decrees for texts in Arabic script. So the historian I mentioned earlier, the Maqrizi, uh, did the same thing in a slightly later period from Mamluk decrees. But looking beyond the Islamic world, if you go to the texts I was referring to earlier that, that were unearthed along the perimeter of the Taklamakan Desert, along the Silk Roots, there are medieval decrees. The one that I, I have an illustration of in the book is from the 10th century in Chinese that were recycled for personal copies of liturgical texts, in this case, Buddhist texts written in Chinese characters. So this seems to have been a, a common kind of economy of documents. And that was like another one of these aha moments where I was like, oh, I've just been looking at the text, but what happens between the texts, right? What what about all the paratextual information that contains um, historical information as well? One of the reasons that that became possible for me and even kind of begged out to be done was because of the digital revolution. When I was writing my dissertation, I was looking almost entirely at printed editions of texts. So and when you look at a printed edition of a text, it's severed from its actual material form. And in order to access the material form, you either need like a nice research budget, you need to like get on an airplane and go to a library. This is like pre digital images, I'm talking about the 90s. Or you need to like ruin your eyesight looking at microfilm, which I did quite a bit of in graduate school. But even from microfilm, you can't get the feel for a text. So inevitably what this leads to is when people make additions of these texts, they edit the text block on the page that interests them and they ignore the rest. Understandable. I'm interested in letters. I'm going to edit this letter. I'm going to ignore the liturgical poem on the back because who cares? But once you get digital imaging and you can easily look at recto and verso at the same time, um, you know, from the comfort of your own home, you understand that there is a kind of holistic piece of evidence here that has different kinds of texts on it. And then you have to start explaining the relationship among these texts and processes of, of recycling and reuse. And that, too, is information. And it's information that's lost when we're not actually looking at the physical object itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the question of what digitization does to the Geniza is huge, but I want to focus on the paper, right, on the physicality of the Geniza, which is to say that I think that what you're talking about here, and you emphasize this in the book too, it's really just a fascinating argument about the importance of paper and its changing meaning and value in society. So when you think about this market for used paper, the way in which people just throw things away, and it wasn't just religious, it was also practical. You know, In what ways is the nature of paper as a valuable resource uh, important to the story of the Geniza as a whole, um, also to the survival of these documents, specifically these kinds of decrees you know, in general? So you know, what's going on here when we talk about the history of paper, which, again, from a 21st century standpoint, is uh, obviously a fascinating topic on its own, in part because it's so disconnected or, or so different from the way that we think about it today.
1: As paper has become less and less a thing that we rely on and use in our daily lives, it's become actually more interesting as a a research object, the history of paper, the various uses of paper. In the Geniza world, it's not just paper. So that's the the first thing that I need to, to say, that there are lots of different writing surfaces in use. And now just zeroing in on the portable writing surfaces, Egypt for a long time had used, obviously, papyrus. That's what Egypt is famous for. I mean, I think the earliest papyri that we have date from like 3000 BCE. So this was, you know, very, very long standing writing surface in Egypt. And then ostraca, so potsherds. There are fewer potsherds, at least that I'm aware of, from the Fatimid period. And by the Fatimid period, papyrus is virtually extinct in Egypt as a writing surface. It was still being made and used as like wrapping paper or, you know, for like, let's say like fish in the marketplace or something like that. Um, But it wasn't something that people would write on after about 940, which is fascinating because before 900, papyrus was still the most common writing surface in use in Egypt. So what happened between 900 and 940? What happened was that paper arrived from the east and in very short order, completely supplanted papyrus as the kind of writing surface of choice. There was also parchment. So parchment was a a newer, in quotation marks, type of writing surface because we really only find evidence of it towards the beginning of the first millennium, uh, CE. And parchment is an interesting material because, first of all, it's messy, it's expensive, you know, you need like herds and herds just to make a book out out of parchment. But the fact is that compared to papyrus, parchment is a luxury material. Paper, I would say, is somewhere in the middle of that continuum. It's not like the most luxurious and expensive thing in the world, as parchment is. Uh, At the same time, it's not as cheap or as easy to make as papyrus. Paper is another story. For paper, you need infrastructure. You need a source of running water. You need a means of beating and grinding the fibers that you're going to use into pulp. Or you can use Used cloth. so used cloth is super convenient, first of all, because there's a lot of it lying around. I mean, don't get me wrong. like you know clothing back then was not like clothing today. You know your average person would own like four or five garments over a lifetime, and you would often bequeath them to your children. So you have to think of clothing back then in the way we would think of like houses or cars now, right? Sometimes they're transgenerational. you don't have that many over a lifetime. But once it's worn out and it's been patched a certain number of times, you know, there's always this kind of like sweet spot between saving the thing on the one hand. And the other hand, you don't want to like be dressed in tatters or something that's obviously been patched a million times, depending on social class and what kind of image you want to project. All that comes into play in the Middle Ages. But once the thing is finally like you can't do anything more with this, this is what you make paper out of. And by the time it reaches the paper manufacturer, it is so worn and soft and... And it's already been kind of ground and beaten down, that it's actually a much easier material to work with than raw fiber. But it still has to be shredded. It has to be beaten so that the fibers come apart enough so that you can make decent paper. If you look at the paper on which Geniza documents are written, it's actually pretty lumpy. There's a lot of like bad quality paper where they don't really spend a lot of time to beat the stuff into a fine enough pulp that it's going to make for decent paper. Whereas around Samarkand, they were like famous for the quality of paper, possibly because it was a rice growing culture. And when you have rice, you need mills to mill the rice. So there are these mills that actually, you know, survive today, where paper was made that would also mill rice, like trip hammer mills, which are very good for this kind of thing. So you need infrastructure for paper. Paper is a valuable resource, but it's not as luxurious as parchment. It's so interesting, like people always try to come up with these kind of technological determinist arguments for things like, oh, people like parchment because it lasts longer than paper, or people like parchment in the Middle Ages because it held ink better. And even if you washed off the ink, it would still leave a kind of tattooed stain. So it was unforgeable. Whereas you find in literature also the exact opposite thing, which is the, the governments really didn't like to use parchment. For official documentation, because you could wash the ink off and then you could forge things, right? I don't think this is the place to look. Like, I don't think that the technological determinist arguments are gonna end up yielding the whole story. In fact, it's about the choices that human beings make for all kinds of reasons, including prestige. So, what we do know is that the Arabs started to write on paper, as far as we know, for the first time when they conquered Central Asia in the early eighth century. There's a story in the Medieval Chronicles about this battle in 751, where supposedly the Abbasids fought the—we know that the Abbasids fought the Chinese, but supposedly in this battle, they took a Chinese prisoner of war who taught them paper making. No, it turns out that Arabs knew about paper before that. Whether they were making it before it, we don't know, but they were certainly using it as early as the 720s. Eventually, the Abbasids are like, hey, this is really good stuff. The Abbasids were drastically increasing— their administrative capacity um as the empire spread and became more and more kind of regularized and so they need writing material they couldn't do everything on parchment and leather although they did they did some things on parchment and leather and they certainly couldn't do everything on papyrus because it had to be either exported from Egypt or else you had to grow papyrus elsewhere which they tried to do on the Tigris but not so easy and so eventually paper became a kind of really convenient solution for them especially rag paper here we're talking about the 8th, early ninth century. By the time paper arrived in Egypt at the turn of the 10th century, we have evidence that paper was used in the late 9th century in Egypt, but it really kind of, kind of takes off after 900. It already had the stamp of Abbasid prestige, of like prestige of the Abbasid East, and especially governmentality in Baghdad. And that was when scribes picked up on it. So in a way, the history of paper and its movement from East to West across Asia is in miniature the story of many of these transfers of technology, first of all, across Asia, because Asia is an enormous continent, but it's also horizontal, a horizontal continent. As Michael Cook points out in his brief history of the human race, you can more or less be in the same kind of climate going all the way from China over to the Atlantic, and that facilitates the transfer of certain kinds of technology and also human migration. So, there's a big story of transfer across Asia. But there's also a really interesting story of government conventions and government, what's considered to be prestigious for government use. And you can see that migration out from the Abbasid heartland in Iran and Iraq a little bit towards the east, but especially towards the west. And you see it in waves. And you see this in the in the Jewish manuscripts as well. Um, eventually, it's the quote unquote Babylonian or Iraqi handwriting that kind of infiltrates Egypt and takes over there in the late 10th century, just as it had in the Arabic hands of the 9th century.
0: Yeah, and I I think that one of the other interesting things about this approach, and you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, you also talked about it in the book, is a shift away from, as you said, a search for documents to thinking about how documents are produced, how they're used, how they're stored. I think this is a fascinating development in and of itself, but it's also interesting because it mirrors the shift in terms of how we think about the Geniza in particular, and also about how we may think about other kinds of repositories as well, which is to say that there is an inherent drama to thinking about the search for documents. This is a critical thread to how people have talked about the Geniza. Even in the title of your book, the idea of a lost archive has an inherent drama, something which is lost and then which is found the same thing, you know, sacred trash, right? You know, This is a trash heap, right? The Cairo Geniza that is then reappraised. And again, I think that the drama of the salvage of documents, you know, this is a critical way of thinking about historical materials in general. Walter Benjamin, for instance, talked about the detritus of history on the one hand, but also, I don't know, the, the ghetto archive of the Second World War. And I think that part of what you're pointing us to here is that there's more to it than just the drama, right? It's not just about sort of this exciting find that's exciting because you found it, but it tells us something much bigger. Maybe if you want to explain a bit about the difference between these approaches, why it matters, and how we can kind of bridge the gap, or rather fuse together, you know, this inherent drama to, say, for instance, the history of the Cairo Geniza, and also this kind of more quotidian, but also very interesting set of issues about the function of archives, the function of records in society.
1: The search for hidden sources of history, it does have the kind of inherent drama to it. I mean, this is what archaeologists thrive on. Although if you've ever you know hung around an archaeological dig, you realize that most of what they pull out of the ground is like really not that exciting at all. Likewise, with the search for documents or manuscripts in general, I mean, manuscripts, anything handwritten or handmade has a kind of inherent, you know, charisma as an object because it's one-off. If you're the kind of historian who likes to work before the era of mechanical reproduction, every object has this kind of larger-than-life value. And it also has larger-than-life value because one of the problems that all pre-modern historians face is lack of information. So anything that you can kind of add to the historical record is like, you know, cause for celebration. At the same time, there is a kind of what I would call a positivist bias in this approach, which suggests that just because it's new, it is somehow more exciting than the things that have already been published or that all you really need to do is bring something that nobody's seen before out into the open and you've done your job. On the one hand, you are doing a great service to scholarship and really to humanity, if you can take a written text and transcribe it and, and, you know, interpret it and translate it for others, that's a huge service. At the same time, it's also true that certainly in an American or North American university, and increasingly this is also the case in European universities, no one will give you a PhD just for what we call a critical edition uh, and a translation. That used to be absolutely par for the course, that that was enough to prove your skill set in the field. You did an addition and translation. Congratulations, you have technical skills. You can now teach others to do the same. But for historians, this is rarely enough. We don't stop at that. We want to also interpret the texts. We want to put them into some wider context and ask the question that I think you and I have been so well-trained, always to ask ourselves, which is, so what? Why does this matter? It can't matter only because it's new, because, you know, quote-unquote new, because we've never seen it before, because it's salvaged, because it's filling a gap, right? I had a a teacher when I did my PhD at Columbia, Michael Stanislavski, who's a 19th century historian, who always used to say to me, filling gaps isn't enough. We were both students of Yosef Khaimir Shami, who used to say, you know, okay, if you want to do like the household accounts of the kingdom of You know, Navarre from 14 like 89 to 1489 and a half, like, okay, you're going to tell us things we didn't know before, but who cares? Right. What's the what's the so what question? You know, but then I want to also give the other side of the argument, which is like, you know, I will die on this hill, which is you have to interpret, you have to put things in a larger context. It's not enough just to discover the new. At the same time, I think historians are not always well equipped to deal with the kind of linguistic technicalities that the old school philologists were trained to do. In other words, the philologists maybe aren't historical enough for the historians, but it's also true that historians are often not philological enough for the philologists.
0: Yeah, I'm always intrigued by questions that seem to have obvious answers, because that always means that it's hiding something that we don't think about because it's obvious. So maybe do you want to say a quick word you know, as we move towards our conclusion about why the Geniza is so important? and the ways in which it matters, both in ways that are perhaps obvious, but also that we may not think about as much.
1: I mean, here I'm going to say something that partially contradicts what I said earlier, which is, I and mean, part of the reason that the Geniza matters so much is that it's telling us stuff that we never knew before. So it is kind of, you know, filling a, a massive gap in our knowledge, but it's a gap with, with a difference, which is, it's not simply that we didn't know, like, oh, I didn't know that, you know, people ate two meals per day in medieval Cairo, or I didn't know that the Jewish population had this trade network all over the Mediterranean. It's much more than that. I started to understand that the Geniza documents not just the Jewish world that we kind of suspected might be there, which is, you know, cities across the Mediterranean basin and into Iraq and and Iran, but actually a much, much bigger Jewish world. There was a burgeoning trade uh, in the Western Indian Ocean, that others are studying you know, much more deeply than I have. But there remains a lot of work to be done on the chapter of the Western Indian Ocean trade that is, that is documented in the Geniza, especially for the late 11th and 12th centuries. But it turns out, and this like really surprised me when I started to, to think about it, there were Jewish traders even in the Eastern Indian Ocean. So there were Jews trading on the island of Sumatra, Jews trading in what is today Malaysia. And if you think about the distances that people are traveling in pre-modern conditions, it kind of boggles the mind. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about global history, but, you know, there's a much deeper level of global history that you can do, which is let's think about what the implications of all of this human migration have been. In the case of the Jews, if you think about like the vast networks of Jews in, in all kinds of areas across the world, and also the sheer degree of interchange among Jews of all kinds, the simple stories that we've told ourselves about the transmission of Jewish tradition across the generations completely break down. So the kind of going word in like, you know, Jewish studies for the longest time was that most of what we know of Jewish law comes from the Babylonian Geonim, the heads of the Jewish yeshivas in Iraq, you know, who were themselves transmitting the earlier uh, texts of the Babylonian Talmud. But it's much more complicated than that. My colleague Eva Krakowski in her uh, book coming of age in medieval Egypt, documented the fact that the that very few children were raised in a single household with a with a stable set of adults. There was extended family, but there was also not this idea of like you live in one place, but rather, you know, there were like the aunties and and often like you know the the mother was actually allowed to keep her residence from before, have a room in her parents' house, but there was also the residence with a husband. in other words, there wasn't this kind of very restricted notion of the of a nuclear family that we have, even if it wasn't quite the extended family that we, you know, often associate with the Middle East. And the implications of what she discovered is that there were Rabbinites marrying Karaites. There were Jews who observed the Babylonian right marrying Jews who observed the Palestinian right. There were people intermarrying across religions. So children in an age when religion was transmitted mimetically as opposed to strictly through books, because literacy rates were relatively low compared to what we have now, children would have been exposed to an enormous variety of ways of practicing Judaism, right? So when you start to see the sheer diversity in this world, you understand that actually this idea of Jewish continuity needs to be reframed. You know, then there's like all this stuff about like Jews, Christians, and Muslims living together about, again, that would be like a whole other podcast. That's the importance of the Geniza for Jewish history. The importance of the Geniza for other kinds of history, I mean, that's like a whole, a whole other set um, of topics. But for medieval Middle Eastern history in particular, the fact that we have information about daily life, the fact that we know what traders would have said to other traders when they were angry at them for like not sending them the quality of stuff that they needed or when they were like you owe me money or when they were you know like the just the texture inspires us to ask different kinds of questions of the past you know the granularity that you can get out of these texts the fact even that you can look at a tiny minority i mean jews were you know i think never more than 10% of the population in any of these societies The fact that you can look at a tiny minority and actually understand the ways in which it's representative of a much larger whole, that in itself has a lesson for the history of the Middle East, which has often been written from an exclusively Muslim point of view.
0: I just feel like we should come back to this, this thing that you just mentioned offhandedly earlier in the conversation about the digitization of the Geniza. You mentioned the ways in which the Geniza offers a doorway into so many different histories, but that... Each document has many levels, many layers. You don't get those by looking at a transcript. You know, so the digitization, the making available of, of high-resolution images and all these things, You know, I just think that the digitization project is so important. Um, it also needs to be looked at critically uh, in a lot of ways. So I don't know if you just want to say something very, very briefly about digitization in the Geniza.
1: Digitization is important because it leads us more easily to the material text. We can actually see what the text Looks like as a material object and analyzed it from that perspective, paradoxically, right? Because digitalization is also dematerialization, but it's also a kind of defamiliarization of the material that makes you give more attention to it. Digitization has also enabled the automation of certain processes that before were very slow and artisanal, one of which is joining fragments. So there are computer vision algorithms that were developed around 2010 that are now available to anybody who works on the Geniza for finding. You know, that upper half of the page of which you have the lower half and you really want to know what the rest of the text says. So that's been revolutionary. It's speeded up our work tremendously. It also allows us to handle data in a much more linked and organic way. SD Goitain, when he died in 1985, left 26,000 index cards to do with Geniza documents. So he had like his own kind of database system, but it worked because he had a prodigious memory and because he was extremely organized the potential of digitization means that we can link all of this data and actually find patterns and connections that we can't see necessarily with our own brains. And then finally, for me, the most important element of digitization is collaboration. Humanists are often kind of trained to work monastically. We have like our little cells that we're not supposed to really go outside, but the best work increasingly is done collaboratively, all the more so on a source base like the Geniza, where there are so many different kinds of documents and nobody can specialize in all of them.
0: Well, thank you so much, Marina. This has been a really great conversation, and I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk about all these things.
1: Likewise. It was great to be
0: here. And thanks to you for listening in. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.